You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. a little bit of everybody's blood we're gonna find out who's the thing watching norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life you see when a man bleeds it's just tissue no blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked it'll try and survive crawl away from a hot needle say welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste, The Thing Retrospective Series. You gotta be fucking kidding. Join Garrett. He must be over eight feet long. Matt. Poor baby, you're starting to lose it, aren't you? And the returning Mick Duffy. Yeah, fuck you too! As they look at all three films based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? Written by John W. Campbell, Jr. No arterial structure indicated. 1951's The Thing from Another World. May I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape. The John Carpenter 1982 remake, The Thing. I'm gonna hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. And whatever the hell they call that 2001 film, well, The Thing. His face is encased in some type of amniotic sac. Is The Thing from Another World the oldest movie the aftertaste has ever covered? Holy cats. Is Carpenter's film as classic as its reputation? Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around here. Is Goudreau really an alien? Now in bitter new father mode. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. We test the blood to all these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Let's do it. The Thing from Another World, released April 27th, 1951. Budget on this was $1.3 million. Box office, $1.95 million. And this was directed by Christian Nibby. Or was it? We'll talk about it. Holy cat! It is time to talk about The Thing. I am so excited. First, let me introduce my cohorts here, my fellow scientists. One, my confidant, the one who stands by me through all of these retrospectives, one only Matthew Goudreau. What's going on, Matt? (laughs) 
if you're thick and thin at this point, why stop now? Why stop? Exactly. And the man who tends to go through these horror sci-fi series with us, and I'm so excited to have him on this particular one, the one and only Mick Duffy. What's up, Mick? How are you doing, sir? I'm okay. I'm I'm enjoying an evening of tranquility, so it's it's it, it's good to interrupt it with some chatter about an old monster movie. A very old monster movie. This is the movie. oldest thing. This is the oldest thing you've discussed. Yeah, Matt. Last year we did Doctor No. This is officially the oldest movie we've ever done on this podcast. Yeah, it's about as old as you, right? <laughs> oh, jeez. No. <laughs> Although I felt that way this week after being in the sun as long as I have. Now, this series is something, it, it's, it's so interesting because this 1951 movie, when I put this schedule together, I was looking at Mick. I mean, when we stopped talking last year, we were just getting ready to start Shyamalan. And we're getting ready to end it here. At the time we record this, we're getting ready to end it in a couple weeks. And we've done Toy Story, we've, we did 10 weeks of The Fast and Furious, believe it or not. In between this and the Stephen King retrospective, I had a three-week window, and I'm like, I need to find something to put in here. And then I thought, well, I'll just take two weeks and put the thing in. I had no idea that this was done by Howard Hawks, even if I'm the Carpenter aficionado, which, you know, we'll talk about that next week. But Mick, how familiar are you with this first film, The Thing from Another World? Um, it's it's weird because uh, one of the things I, I'm that's got me the most work over the years is I uh, I wrote a short uh, for my my director friend Enda Hughes a short called Flying Saucer Rock and Roll that's Sometimes. a um, you can find it on YouTube if you're so inclined it's it's a homage to 1950s sci-fi and 1950s wow. rock and roll films and I've always uh, yeah I've always yeah, we've both always been very into this that era and those films from that time and certainly growing up I'd watched a lot of these films and certainly when we were researching that I think we watched all of the ones we could find. Wow. And it's weird. I had never seen this. This this I think was the uh, the one major blind spot. I, I'd never seen this. I, I I think I thought I'd seen it because it gets mentioned a lot and you know when people make those um, inexpensive mm-hmm. documentaries about the history of horror sci fi and, you know, you catch John Landis or Drew Dante and you let them talk for an hour and you just throw in some clips. I've definitely seen John Landis and Drew Dante and possibly Carpenter talk about this on TV. And mm-hmm. so I've seen I've seen all the good bits. Same here. I just I'd never seen this. Now, Matt, obviously, this was way before your time. Hello, it was before me and Mick's time. But you are a, you are a film scholar. You you like watching old films. Had you seen this before we uh, started this retrospective? Yes, I had. But just once. This would have been back when I was writing. I think we did an article on remakes that people forget were remakes. Dark of this thing was a topic of discussion among other films. And while people are aware of its existence, especially the Carpenter movie, a lot of people forgot that it, it ended up itself as a remake. And if they do, they've probably never seen the original movie. So I checked it out just for comparison and completionist purposes. So that would have been about probably six, seven years ago at this point. So this this has been only my second viewing. So I can't say that this is a movie that I grew up with or studied. It was just a uh, check it off the box, if you will. Now, what about Howard Hawks? Matt, did you know of Howard Hawks' resume? Had you seen anything other than this as far as Howard Hawks goes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wasn't aware of his involvement in this because if you go, uh, when I was going through his resume, it doesn't show up because of reasons Garrett will most likely divulge momentarily. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big Howard Hawks as a director. I, I feel about him the way most people do about John Ford as far as their overall importance to specifically American cinema. 
that there's a lot of things that I think he can get superior to John Ford and a lot of his other contemporaries. I would say if I had to pick like the movies that I think everyone should check out from him, I would say His Girl Friday, Red River, and the original Scarface. I think those are the three everyone should check out. And to have and have not, that's uh, of all the Bogey and McCall picks, that's probably the one I'd recommend the most. So I'm a big fan of his work, and I, I, it's, this one in particular is very strange to see on his resume once you're done doing your initial research because it's kind of a, it's an outlier for what I said for reasons that Garrett will undoubtedly mention momentarily. Wow. I had no idea he had he'd done the original Scarface. Much like The Thing, another movie that was remade in the 80s and the remake sort of took over as far as popularity goes. Yeah. Now, Mick, you are a film scholar. You are a studier of film. You you have done shorts based on film. Like, you've, you've done a lot of stuff. And as somebody who teaches courses and such, I mean, you must be like a massive fan of this guy, right, Howard Hawks? You know, um... There's a couple of key Hard Hawks films that definitely crop up. I mean, certainly when I was an undergrad, when I was doing my, my BA in film, you know, I had a lecturer who was obsessed with Hard Hawks, and any chance he got, he would make us watch a Hard Hawks film. I'll not even mention his name, but um, uh, he's, I mean, he's still quite well known in film academia, but he, he did occasionally make terrifying disclosures, such as that um, when he made us watch uh, Rio Bravo, he talked about pouring over it frame by frame on the, um, you know, the 16mm editing machine. And especially all the bits of Angie Dickinson in them, and just it's yeah. So I've been taught I've been taught about Hawks by someone who's obsessed with Hawks, but was slightly creepy anytime we talked about actresses. So um, for that reason, I don't think I've watched a lot of hard Hawks films. Mm. I think I had a teacher who you know whilst impressing upon me how great and important these are, and whilst I agreed. I, I just don't watch them because I'm thinking, oh, God, yeah. Now these are all on shiny disc. He's just going to be pausing them at home and staring. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. we, when we were discussing doing this series, you were concerned about finding a copy of this. You could have probably just called him. He probably has one right on his desk. Well, I, I, I got it on Blu-ray. Yeah. And uh, I, I realized the nanosecond I bought it on Blu-ray that it's actually um, it's on the BBC streaming service. For like the whole next year, it'll be on BBC iPlayer for the next twelve Is months. Could have saved myself. Yeah, yeah, they've um, they've um, they seem to have a bulk deal to have lots of old RKO films there. What would you pay for this? What I paid for the Blu-ray, I I paid seven seven pounds fifty. Okay, that's not too bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, but it was part of a two for one deal. I could have had Soylent Green instead, you know. <laughs> so everybody from John Carpenter, obviously, to Ridley Scott, to Quentin Tarantino, amongst many others, have cited Howard Hawks as a big influence on their work. He's just somebody I've always heard about over the years. I've taken film courses, and you know he's mentioned, but. When I talk about old films, my favorite old films are like noir films. You know, I, I love film noir. And Howard Hawks wasn't really a part of that genre. So I, I, I've kind of stayed away from his stuff. When you, get to, when you get to this film, his name's not on his director. We have this guy, Charles Nibby. He was an assistant. And I had no idea before doing research into this movie, this was a Spielberg, Toby Hooper kind of deal where... At first, Hawks was like, yeah, I just gave him pointers, and he did what he did, and it's his film. But as the years went on and Hawks got older, he said, yeah, I pretty much directed that film. And you talk to people who were on the set, and they said that some people said, yeah, he was on the set, 
and giving occasional pointers, but everyone, but some of the actors were like, yeah, he was there every single day, and he pretty much directed us. I mean, I, I don't know anything about the man. I don't know about his, his history on film sets. I don't know if he was a tyrant or what, but Matt, you obviously heard about that situation, right? The Hooper-Spielberg comparison is exactly what I wrote down in my notes. He was someone that w- was a very powerful presence because... He was not upholding to classic Hollywood as far as, you know, you only make movies for one studio or one genre, and that's it. He purposely liked to bounce around. But he was very pro-active. That was one of the big, as long as you were a man, basically. His whole thing was the, you know, with a lot of his movies, he did not use a lot of cuts when he was directing actors. He liked to use as few shots as possible. He was one of the first naturalistic directors when it came to working with actors, so much so that the uh, Howard Hawks Scarface, uh, Paul Mooney, is technically the first person to give a method performance, quote-unquote, in the Hollywood system. So he's a pioneer on a lot of fronts. But yeah, his fingerprints are all over this movie. This is I My theory is that he started taking more credit as science fiction became more and more popular. Because let's not forget, 1951 was not quite the heyday of science fiction, especially alien invasion movies. That didn't really start until another movie that was released in 51, The Day the Earth Stood Still. From there, started to get a lot of your more, you know, stuff like that, you know, it, it was pissed off nature movies, basically, mixed with post-atomic stuff like Godzilla and um, stuff like that. And I will say, not to go on a rant and let my film dick flag fly. He, Hawk said something very interesting when he was talking about horror versus sci-fi. Because this is, you can argue it falls into both. He said that horror is all about being scared of the unknown. Stuff that seems illogical or implausible. Science fiction is about a lack of understanding, but also being more optimistic towards the idea of understanding through science and technology. So not you can be scared of it, but you also have to be willing to change your perceptions to combat whatever it is you're up against. So that was kind of his... He viewed horror as strictly like Frankenstein, which I think some of those blueprints are actually in this movie as well, especially if you look at the creature design. Absolutely. Before I even pop this in, obviously, I, I, I didn't know too much about this, but I, I had no idea. This was, this was also an angry nature movie. <laughs> um, I, no idea before I started watching this. All right. You boys ready about, about you guys about ready to jump right in or Mick, do you have anything to add to that or you want to just go right into the film? Well, I think I think it's kind of it, it's interesting. You know, it's a because um, Matt there mentioned uh, Dave the Earth Stood Still mm-hmm. and that's Robert Wise, who's, you know, He's a director who started as an editor, yeah, and you can see he's very, you know, certainly in his early films, you can see he's very influenced by people he'd edited for, like Wells, right? Mm-hmm. And you've also got Don Siegel, who made Body Snatchers, you know, the original version of Body Snatchers. He'd been an editor, so I'd kind of, knowing this going in, I thought, oh, well, editors often make for really interesting directors. Yeah. And no, uh, well, I mean, we'll get to this, but I think... I think one thing here is that they had edited Hawks as something like he, he's the editor of Red River, mm-hmm. and not 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 to not to diminish the amount of work involved in cutting that picture, but 
you know, those Hulk's takes that are very, very long, you know, his entire style is, you know, it's very different from, say, Orson Welles' style, yes. So I, I wonder how much experience of sort of crafting cinema are you getting if you're just editing Hawks? You know what I mean? It's yeah. a, um, yeah, how much, how much are you going to learn about creating, you know, you can be editing it the way he shot it. There's no other way to actually cut the stuff together and get creative, yeah? Mm-hmm. I think that more than anything else is a, um, how much was he, short of, you know, uh, us actually summoning the spirits of uh, Hard Hawks and maybe here to discuss it, we'll not know, right? But yeah. You can sort of see how, even if Hawks wasn't genuinely telling them what to do, you can see how maybe he just absorbed that style. Yeah, that's a good point. If you have someone like Howard Hawks watching over you, you definitely, you know, you see it with people under Spielberg all the time. And, you know, when Spielberg produces a film, a movie has a Spielberg feel to it. It's kind of the same thing to me. Again, like you said, Mick, we weren't on set for these. So for this movie, they would be the only ones to tell us for sure. I just found it to be an interesting anecdote that this shit went on even back then. Well, I think it happens in this one because... Everything else in Christian Nyby's filmography is kind of just obscure, but it's weird because I was trying to think, is this the earliest example of a name director producing something and everyone assuming they made it or their name being prominent on the poster or, you know, the way it was on this? And um, actually, one year earlier, we get Mighty Joe Young, if you know that film, mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah, uh, which is presented by John Ford. John Ford's a producer on that, and his name's on it, and no one ever tries to credit that film to John Ford, or says it's Fordian, or any of that stuff, you know, um, yeah, Fordian, Fordian, yeah, film scholar (laughs) language again, yeah, Fordian, yeah. So we get an opening credit that looks awful familiar to those who grew up with Carpenter's version, like I did. I had no idea that this went back even then, to see the thing just kind of form right in front of us like it does here. Pretty cool stuff. If anything, Howard Hawks, and and Matt, I think you said it when we opened this thing. I mean, so ahead of his time when it came to this stuff. So we're seeing a roundtable full of a bunch of scientists giving small talk, and they get summoned. They're told an airplane type is missing, and they start thinking that it might be either Canadians or Russians. And I love how this guy has to yell about closing the door, and then he bitches that he can't get a revolving door. Like, this is all pretty good stuff. I like this opening scene a lot, actually. We kind of know we're in old movies territory. I mean, it is very Hawksian, the way they're kind of, the dialogue's overlapping. It's the big yeah. It's the big thing you point to Hard Hawks as innovating in or doing a lot of. It feels like it could turn into a fun, zippy, screwball comedy. It does. Alas, no. <laughs> You'd think it, based on that, it'd be something more along the lines of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman or The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but the movie's a little bit got more on its mind than those kinds of flicks did. Yeah, but when you talk about these movies, I was expecting these movies to have a real, I don't want to say downtrodden, but a real nihilistic feel to it, you know, where everybody's going to pretty much die and you, you just, it feels really down. But no, we have some pretty snappy dialogue here to open things up. And yeah, if there's one thing I did hear about Howard Hawks, it is the fact that this dialogue is what he's known for. So we cut to the plane of scientists on their way to the expedition and we're getting to know the dog and our crew. What are we thinking about this crew, guys? Well, I, I've got to, I, just, I, I have to talk about the journalist, Scotty. Okay, yeah. And his coat, his coat. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're heading to the North Pole. We're more than that. <laughs> hey, 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 it's, it's ridiculous. It's got this, like, double-breasted log. I mean, it's, you know, you're not going to the theater. 
it will be genuinely cool, you know. Uh, really, it's a, every time I see him, he's that's what makes me see. He's wandered in from you know uh, one of those fast talking newspaper comedies, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. he's dressed like it. And every time, every time he in the movie, he complains about being cold. I'm like, yeah, you know, get a Parker. Something with a nice down lining, you know, ski coats. Really, just, he's the worst. That's a great point. You know, I, I had compliments about this character later on, but I'm thinking about it, and it's like, wait a second. This guy doesn't, he does have this coat on. Like, it's really bizarre that he doesn't have a park on. I like Hawks' approach, because a lot of these actors came from the stage. Mm. So they're used to working in confined settings and having dialogue that purposely interrupts one another. So given the what he's working with, I think he was smart to go that route. But I will say about the reporter, without showing my hand too much, Carpenter, I think, was smart to annex that whole motive slash character from his version. So we're seeing the meeting place from outside their window as the plane lands, and we see the crew make their way to the facility. We're also meeting Scotty, the newspaper man, as we have pointed out already. Pat makes his way to see Miss Nicholson, and wow, this is quite the conversation, isn't it? I was not expecting innuendo in a fucking movie from 1951. This is pretty ballsy to have a conversation like this. I don't know, but it's it's very it's very it's very hard hawks, right? I mean, it's you know the what's that what's that conversation that uh, Bogart and Bacall are having in? Is this in the Big Sleep? Is it the uh, the thing where ostensibly they're talking about horse racing, but actually it's the filthiest conversation ever committed to film. You know, you guys saying that this is all very Hawks, it's making me want to watch a lot of these movies. I, I haven't seen any of his movies. I, I've just heard about him and read about him in books and such. And God, if this is the kind of stuff, it's definitely stuff I definitely want to check out. It's definitely a staple. Although this character, the, the secretary, uh-huh. she's a little bit more forthcoming than... A lot of roles at the time, but Hawksian women, that's literally a term you will learn in film school. Um, yes. The, the whole sexual connotation and the undertones, that is classic Hawks, because he outright never called himself a feminist, because I don't think he's a liar, but all of his women have a very specific way that they speak. They're defined by their professions and they're defined by who they're opposite against. I would say if you're looking for something that's a little bit of an outlier, check out Rio Bravo because you got Angie Dickinson as a character named Feathers. Mm. Take that for what it's worth. But as it works in this movie, she, she's a little bit more capable. She does more than just get coffee. So I, I would consider it a good positive. So Pat asks to begin all over again, but she just points him down to see Dr. Carrington. He goes to see Carrington, who tells Pat that radioactivity accompanied the plane on its way down. That is the equivalent to that of a meteor. They also reveal whatever, whatever it is contains 20,000 tons of steel, which is little much for the type of airplanes that we know at this time. So they're setting us up, right, guys? We're, we're getting set up for uh, what's to come. And I like the setup. I'll go ahead and say I, I, like, uh, I like all of this as a way to set us up for what we're about to see. This is also where you start to get the – this was one of the first movies to be critical of radiation and, you know, post-atomic age because we're, you know, five, six years removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we're still a couple years away from Godzilla. So, again, this is another piece of the movie that's really ahead of its time is the idea that radiation and sort of a top post-atomic syndrome – 
could bring about the end of the human race. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point about the radiation. We'll see that we see that manifest itself throughout the course of this thing. Right, if you read the uh, story, this is based on the John uh, John Campbell uh, story. Who goes there? Have you did I do read that? No, I haven't. I have not. Right. Okay. Because yeah. it's interesting watching watching this film. If you've read the uh, the story and um, noticing the things they've junked or things that they've altered um, in story, um, we're told that the ship is made of magnesium. So uh, I'm I'm glad that they that they tell us that this is a large chunk of steel that they're going to have to look at because um, I don't know if I remember chemistry class, but um, I don't think magnesium could enter the Earth's atmosphere. I think it would be a very bad heat shield. Yeah. I was glad that they'd steal. That uh, that made my little inner science nerd happy. <laughs> what else did they explain from that, Mick? Anything you could tell us? Is it this movie that much different from the book? Oh, this is wildly different. I mean, the, the basic setup is similar, but it kind of, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even really maintain character names either, and none of the characters are really straightforward analogs either. It's a um, it's a very, very loose adaptation. You know, they, they've taken the setup and um, there's an alien, and the alien's not really like the awesome alien in the story, you know. Mm, gotcha. So they land once again, and we're seeing the line of scientists and dogs make their way to where the crashed aircraft is. And I didn't realize, like, Carpenter takes this shot, and uh, he puts it in his movie. Yes. Yeah, pretty pretty awesome. We hear that a lot of the ice is melted, and they decide to spread out to figure out how big this thing is. And I'm liking the conflict here. I'm liking this newspaper guy wanting to break the story and how the Russians, who were a fear commodity at this time, by the way, being right at the brink of knowing about it. I think the conflict that's being set up here is pretty awesome. Yeah, everybody's got a different perspective and goal. Yeah. And again, it's also reflective of the time, because if you know your history... Soviet involvement, especially in the Arctic, like the North Pole, yeah. that was a real concern for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, this is very much a not only a reflection of, of the times, but also a bit of a, of a predictor as far as what was to come. Um, and even the, the, the general or the head of this, this research facility, he's not entirely evil or Machiavellian, um, which, I, which I think is one of the movie's strengths is that you can look at this as very pro-America mm-hmm. slash anti-definitely communist based on the, the time period. Or you can look at it as the inverse. I think it plays both ways. Yeah, interesting. Um, I really, really like the idea that they fan out in a circle. Yeah. And we've got that, you know, when they realize the shape of it, it's kind of... Um, um, about an hour's drive away from where I live, they found a stone circle, was, I think, in the 1930s. In fact, they found three stone circles, but um, the, the the way the far- farmers were plowing the field, and they kept hitting these stones, and again, apparently, it's, uh, as I've read, it seems to have been sort of a similar thing. You know, they realized that something's submerged, and it's circular. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's great, because it's, it's not a shift that's going to occur naturally, right? Yeah. That's to be a thing that's built. So, um, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I like I like that moment a lot, and um, I can definitely see why Carpenter kind of re- retains that just briefly in his version. Mm-hmm. They examine the ice, they blow it up, it burns, and then explodes. And uh, these are pretty elaborate yeah. effects for 1951. I gotta say, you know, this is this, this is yeah. loud, and this is a lot of stuff going on that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, 
Um, it, in the story, it explodes because it's made of magnesium. Ah, okay. That that comes up as a plot point. It's turned. It was made of magnesium. It just exploded. Um, oh, gotcha. Rigorous science all around. <laughs> so um, yeah. So here though, here here it's more like yeah, they're just throwing thermite charges around. Yeah. They seem more irresponsible here than they do in the movie. <laughs> I think in the original Campbell story, it's like, well, <laughs> you know. We're not irresponsible for our thermite charges. It's these stupid space aliens making our ships out of magnesium. Um, but but here, here's clearly all the uh, the, the scientists' fault. <laughs> yeah, between that and how the creature is unthawed, the, yeah. one, the one knock you have against this movie is these people are not very... Um, what's the word? Practical in, in their yeah, approaches. I'm, I'm just going to say, it's like, the, the scientists in this are frankly stupider than the kids in Jason X. <laughs> frequently stupider, you know. And um, That's saying a and lot, did Nick. Did you notice as a Dr. Voorhees? Did you yes. notice as a Dr. Voorhees? Yes, I did. Yeah. I did. It's in my notes. Hurrah. <laughs> but I have to say, we can make fun of the, sci- the the science and everything all we want. I'm way more sucked into the story than I thought I'd be. When I made this bridge between the Stephen King retrospective and the Hobbit retrospective, I'm just, I looked at this movie more as homework. I'm just like, you know, I have to do it because it's part of it and I'm a completionist and it has to be done. But I'm not really looking forward to watching this movie. Not that I don't like watching old movies. It's just I've already seen the remake of this, and I grew up on the remake. So I wasn't really thinking I was going to see anything new. But I'm watching this, and I'm watching how this dialogue's going back and forth, and the way these guys are playing off each other, and them blowing this thing up. And I'm like, wow, this is actually way more interesting than I was expecting. What about the music? Because this is, I think, the main thing here. This is kind of from this point onward, we're starting to get spooky music. You know, it's the... uh... And it's a weird thing. It's you know I, I don't know how much this is mentioned in academia, and I'm I'm scared to Google this because I might I might fall down a rabbit hole. But you know the way you've got a lot of these starting from this point in the 1950s, you've got these sort of science fiction movies, mm-hmm. and using a lot of weird atonal noises, or they're using the theremin, yes, yeah. and the theremin's like a Russian invention, yes, and uh, the sort of all the atonal musicians uh, mm-hmm. and composers were from Eastern Europe and you know the Soviet Union, yes. Uh-huh. It's weird that sort of alien paranormal stuff, right, is sort of represented in a lot of these films by music that is un-American, yeah. right? <laughs> There's nothing less American than playing a theremin or being atonal. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of thing the stinking reds would do. <laughs> they see what looks like an eight-foot man under the ice. And we're hearing that, of course, the Air Force is trying to cover up any evidence of an identif- unidentified flying object crashing. So this shit was going on, like, even back then. Like, I didn't realize, like, you know, there, there was all this paranoia about Air Force covering things up. And this is the kind of stuff that Mulder would attack for 15 seasons on the X-Files, you know, this kind of stuff. They're able to extract the body from the ice and lay it down to defrost it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure it won't break down. <laughs> Asking for it. Yeah. You know. Yes. Completely asking for it. I love how one of them suggests reading a nice, quiet horror story while waiting for the body to defrost. I thought that was a nice touch. This is the thing that kind of gets me at this point, and when the movie starts to lose me, is they're super blasé about discovering that we are not alone in the car. Yeah. I, 
Yeah, I know. You know, so no, no moments of introspection or, you know, um, stark terror. It's all like, oh, also the destruction of the ship as well. It's like, darn. I think that's actually, that's a point the movie's trying to make in, in a certain perspective. But what I mean by that is I think Hawks was making a commentary on the fact that we had officially played God with dropping a bomb on an entire country mm-hmm. and that we felt so powerful and so in control that we thought if aliens exist, we could just nuke them and be done with them. <laughs> yeah, but what he's saying about them finding this body and then just saying, let's just go defrost it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't dispute that whatsoever. I mean, that's, that, that's about as dumb as, like, not, you know, like what they say in zombie movies, double tap. Yeah. You know, make sure it's dead. Yeah. It's, it's basically that. <laughs> We're also hearing that it may be carrying germs, or it might be a man from Mars. Again, though, I do want to say this dialogue's great. Like, it comes at you rapidly. What they're saying, I can see all of them thinking exactly what they're saying. You know how sometimes you have dialogue come from characters, and you're like, he wouldn't say that. Here, I am loving this dialogue coming from these guys. No, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good point. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of people who worked uncredited on the screenplay, including Ben Heck, who's, you know, one of the, the great screenwriters of uh, sort of the golden age of Hollywood. So, um, yeah, you can see that there's some attention given to these things, but maybe elevated above some of the drive-in schlock we'd see later that decade. Yeah, how was science fiction looked at back in the 50s? We, we kind of talked about this in the beginning, but Mick, go into this. Was there stuff like this? How far ahead of its time was this movie? Well, I mean, again, you got we do have a couple of things that are made by big studios in the 50s. You know, I, th- I, think, I think our sort of distorted cultural memory of 50 science fiction films is that it's all very cheap, yes. Mm-hmm. It's all Invasion of the Saucer Man, you know, yeah. um, when really you've got things like, uh, you know, the same year as this, you've got Day There Stood Still, and that's, you know, that's Fox. That's, that's quite a big, expensive movie. Mm-hmm. You've got Forbidden Planet from MGM, which is a very expensive, you know, um, widescreen color production with lots of a um, lots of never before done visual effects yes yeah, so you've got a lot of i think it's later in the decade you know when you start getting when everyone gets in on this bandwagon you start seeing the uh, cheaper stuff mm-hmm. and things that are maybe made with less care but um this one's where to tell you the main difference between this and i guess anything that follows is the cast skews kind of old yeah. You wouldn't have this many absolute adults in your film, right? Yeah. You know. Gotcha. You, would, you at the very least would have 26-year-olds pretending to be high school seniors, you know. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in it. <laughs> I'm liking how they are skirting past the army, how they're almost playing a game of chess with this alien form in their facility. This is all pretty good stuff. We start hearing about ways of getting back to civilization through pogo sticks. More great dialogue. As there's growing concern about the body being in the facility how it has crazy hands and no hair. They're still keeping this thing a mystery. They're talking about it, but they're keeping it a mystery. Now, Mick, is this what was written, or is this like a Spielberg Joss kind of thing where they just can't afford to show it, so let's just talk about it and build it up? Well, I mean, it's, they can't. They can't. The, uh, the, organ, the way the thing works in the original story is sort of much closer to the Carpenter thing. Okay. Yes, much closer to Carpenter's vision, but there's quite a lot of complicated stuff in it about it having excess amounts of matter left over and that turning into something else. It gets quite forensic about what it can do, but it's definitely not just, okay, it's a guy, and we've got him under a sheet for now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's definitely it's a strange alien form, and you know, the story obviously 
a pro story, you have an unlimited effects budget, so you can do anything you want. And I think with this, it's just, well, they couldn't do a shape-changing monster, right? So they're obviously, you know, yeah, trying to replace that cool idea with something that's much less cool. Yeah, we'll get to it, for sure. Let's also remember, though, that the budget that Garrett mentioned at the beginning, that's astronomical yeah. for a movie of this kind at the time, because the term B-movie is literally because they were cheap as shit to make. This is sort of like, I would compare this as what Howard Hawks was trying to do here was sort of what Richard Donner did with Superman, where it's legitimizing, trying to legitimize an entire genre by making a quote-unquote cinema. Interesting. Pat and Miss Nicholson, they have another innuendo-filled conversation as they kiss and he leaves. This is Bond and Money Penny type of shit. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We cut back to the ice as they're doing a real good job of showing the time spent as as the ice melts. Shadows form and dogs start going crazy as the corporal starts making the accusation that the thing in the ice is alive. You know, I thought Carpenter was the one who brought the paranoia into this story, but it was actually in it all along, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's based into the DNA. I don't think that's something that Carpenter organically created because ultimately this movie, I think, is, is a reflection of McCarthyism. Literally, it is the people who look like your friends might have a dirty secret. Now, obviously, Carpenter's going to take that literally with, with his remake because of the, the shape-changing, but this is the, the paranoia of just communism, people naturally turning on each other. Uh, because let's not forget, there's no foreign characters in this movie. Like, there's no Europeans that are there, you know, on holiday, basically, or, or joint cooperation. is very much the American perspective. Well, I, you know, uh, I think one of my notes when I was watching it is that Dr. Carrington has Lenin's beard, and dresses like a French intellectual. <laughs> so, I mean, he's, he's, he's the character who seems most foreign. He's, he's the one who, you know, I mean, I, I'm ragging on Scotty wearing that coat and everything, but what is, you know, um, Carrington's deal? Why, why is he wearing, you know, like a little turtleneck and that weird jacket? I've just, why is he, you're in a lab at the North Pole, you know, no one's no. There's no dress code. (laughs) They go in the room as the door flies open and the alien escapes, and the dogs are just roaming around in the midst of a blizzard. They make their way outside as they grab what is an arm, I'm guessing, to examine, and the newspaper man is interviewing them as the arm is examined, and it's said that it doesn't have any nerve endings and is actually described as a vegetable. Here we go. So this is a vegetable guy that we're examining here. Um, I'm liking the build-up, but once we get to this reveal, is this the book, Mick, or is this something completely different? No, no, this this is this is so not the book. This is a uh, the film really goes off into its own uh, thing at this point. Thing. <laughs> How often can I say thing? In the, yeah, it goes off into its own thing at this point. Yeah, because once once you change the nature of the monster, you've got to change the nature of the story. Mm. So it it just becomes up oh, monster stalking us. <laughs> It's a vegetable man from another planet. Uh, you know, it's one of those things to where I give it a certain amount of leeway given shape-shifting was, was very difficult to do at the time. You you had to do either stop motion, you know, because it's right around the time Harryhausen became very popular, mm-hmm. or you had to do a lot of dissolve shots like they did with the Wolfman. So I don't think they would have been 100% able to do 
what's reflected in the book. I mean, I read the description because I haven't read the actual book, so I looked up how the creature designed. And I also think this is, like I mentioned, Frankenstein. This is very evocative of the Boris Karloff design, almost. You know, it's like an elongated forehead. He's wearing, like, platform shoes like Boris Karloff did to make himself look taller. So I think it's sort of kind of acting as a bridge between the old what was perceived as horror slash science gone wrong into the new style that we're going to get with, like, you know, look at the creatures designed from, like, Forbidden Planet or even the blob to a certain extent. Yeah, um, one thing that's kind of weird here, and I, I don't know how... I don't know if it's the thing, and I don't know, is James Arnett even still remembered in the U.S.? I mean, I know he was the lead of Gunsmoke, and, like, Gunsmoke was, for decades, the longest-running TV show. Yeah. Yeah, I, I recognize the name. I yeah. do recognize the name, but I I had no idea that he was in this. Yeah, yeah, it's weird because a lot of shit about this rule. Oh, did he? I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. You see the way the creature walks. Uh huh. And you can absolutely, you know, you can absolutely go, oh yeah, that's an actor should be in cowboy boots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, he can. He just he just walks like a tough hombre. You know, it's kind of a say, oh yeah. Give the thing a hat and a, uh, you know, a, 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 a town to keep clean of bandits. Uh, you know, he'll, he'll be fine. Matt, you said that he talks, he talked a lot of shit about this role? Retroactively. Okay. Uh, he said that this was, he felt like this was beneath him, apparently, or, or like it was one of the least challenging acting jobs he's ever done. Oh, God. Well, I mean, put it this way, right? You're an actor, yes? Your agent calls you? And it's like, okay, Howard Hawks wants you for his new production. And you'll be like, fantastic. I really want to do that overlapping dialogue thing. And I'll get to say lots of snappy one-liners. This is going to be a blast. And, you know, you read the script and it's like, oh, right. I'm the vegetable man who doesn't speak. <laughs> I'm the carrot man. Thanks, Howard. <laughs> the doctor's conclusion. Is he that... was also, let's oh, not forget, before Gunsmoke, he was, he was in the military. And once he came back, it was very much just doing whatever role came your way. I think, like, The Farmer's Daughter, I think, was his first movie. So as a as an actor on your way up, you sort of take whatever comes your way, especially at that time, because uh, as long as you weren't blacklisted for being a supposed communist, you would take any role you got. Mm. The doctor's conclusion is that this alien is evolving into a vegetable. So Soylent Green is actually vegetables? Is that what, I, <laughs> is that what I'm gathering here? <laughs> Oh. Uh. <laughs> so at 12:10 the hand moves and they find out that it actually lives on blood. Now, they also bring up strawberries and at this point I really want a fruit salad, guys. As <laughs> I'm watching that. a lot of fruit and vegetables getting mentioned here. I'm like, damn, this is making me hungry. Well, between blood and strawberries, it is literally a red scare. Yeah, good point. Oh. Very good point. And I'm not making a pun. No, I no, I, I get it. I get it. No, but yeah. I do love this line that they'll be famous because no one has lost both a flying saucer and an alien on the same day. <laughs> and this whole comparison to Columbus, like, this is great, man. <laughs> this had me laughing. <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain, there was a kind of a mix-up. The time got mixed up, and, and I was right yeah. on this part when you guys had text, when you guys texted me, and we was like, whoa, are we going soon? Or, and I'm just like, damn. But it was right at this part, and I was laughing so hard. So they find plant sap on a wounded dog. This dog's dead, actually, right? This dog's dead, yeah. 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 
John Wick was about to come around the corner any second. I was waiting for <laughs> Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, the dead dog actually feels like a very John Carpenter kind of detail. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of feels like a... Um, isn't there that bit in Halloween, or is it a deleted scene in Halloween? I've not seen Halloween for quite some time. Or there was going to be Michael Myers feeding on a dog, or he'd killed a dog. He killed one. I seem to remember reading this. He killed one. He killed one, right, but there was... There was, I think, supposed to be a deleted scene really? or or a thing. I guess they thought better of where where it was, it was implied that Myers was going to have eaten part of the dog. I know Zombie put that in one of his, but oh right, yeah. it's just it's just Rob Zombie giving me false memories of John Carpenter films. Damn. <laughs> That's a bad mix-up, man. Right. That's a really bad mix-up. Man, right, <laughs> right. So, so you're telling me there isn't a bit in the Carpenter film where, like, Sid Haig turns up and everything's looked like a carnival, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, surprised by the dead dog in this? Yeah, me surprised too. Surprised by the dead dog stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pat comes in and collapses as he says that while working in the greenhouse, the alien struck him. They open the door, and there he is. Look, I don't want to rip on the effects in this too much. They had what they had. This is 1951. We can't go elaborate. But even in the shadows, if I was scared about the buildup, the anticipation of what this thing would look like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, that looks pretty stupid. <laughs> you sort of mentioned earlier, it looks a bit like the Universal Frankenstein's monster. But actually, I think, you know, with the bald head, I'm, I'm getting the genuine uh, Peter Boyle and young Frankenstein vibe here. Okay. Just the, uh, the baldness just makes it look silly to me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be too critical of, of, of the design because it, it's... I, I always appreciate Pat Callan. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and, and it, let's be honest, there are far worse monsters. If you look during this Whoa. time... <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah. Like any of the shit Roger Corman was making around this time? Mm-hmm. You've ever seen Creature from the Haunted Sea? Which is a very obscure movie. Don't ask me why I know that. One. That's very um, yeah. It is one of the most laughable things you'll ever see. It looks like a goddamn pine cone with eyes. <laughs> oh oh yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Oh, I guess I do. I guess I do. All right. One of the funniest things. Oh yeah, I I think when you watch an older horror sci-fi film, you sometimes have to make these allowances or, or let the film off the hook for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't complain about this because I I, I give the very hokey-looking Martians in Quatermass in the pit a, uh, a pass, mm. you know. So um, I, I've got to be kind to this, I suppose, you know. Now, they're boarded in, and Mick, I'm starting to get some of what Romero took for Night of Living Dead from this. Uh, when we did our Dead yes. retrospective three, four years ago, uh, all this paranoia and boarding themselves up made it tough not to think of that. You think Romero kind of took a little bit of that as well? I don't know. I can't think of an earlier example of this. I mean, yeah, it does. It just feels teeny bit proto Romero. Also, I guess Elaine, um, any any time you know, because it is so cool, then they're nailing stuff up. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting um, Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Oh yes, it's sort of very much in conversation with Hard Hawks and with this film and with John Carpenter's The Thing. So um, yeah, there's a lot of weird echoes. Tarantino famously took some of uh, Miracone's score from The Thing and put it in a full eight. So I think he was thinking about that. Oh, yeah. So the creature is smarter and more powerful than they are. And I like this concept we hear that only science can conquer it. Here's the thing. Looking at this from the creature's point of view, okay. it's crashed, yes. Uh-huh. They're not helping it. They've blown up its ship. 
And if it has to feed on blood, well, what the hell else is it going to do? Yeah? <laughs> so you're... I mean, I think, I think I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm, I might be on team thing here. Yeah, you, you're, you're taking the Johnny is the, is the good guy in the Karate Kid route here, where you're saying the villain is actually the good guy. <laughs> I mean, they blew his ship up. Yeah. You know? That's a good point. Bunch of primitives. The best they've got is like, what, a DC-10? <laughs> he has traversed the void of interstellar space and they blew his ship up. <laughs> and I, I, would, I would be pissed. That's a great point. Didn't even think about that. We hear that sprouts are formed and grown in two hours as it reproduces itself. And with all these sprouts, the idea that the alien is creating a massive army with thousands of them is mentioned. We're going the whole aliens are taking over the planet route. And this is stuff that even like DC, or I'm sorry, that Marvel would take and run with later on. Like this is all crazy stuff here. Pat goes to Miss Nicholson and takes the notes, which says that they are not to destroy it, but examine it. Because it belongs in a museum, guys. Again, science versus the army, right? Are we going to blow it up, or are we just going to examine this thing? Interesting route to take with this. Well, it's kind of weird, because one of the things you get, one of the weird undercurrents you get sort of early in the Cold War, is the uh, reports about the weird horticultural things the Russians are doing. And I've totally forgotten the name of the uh, Soviet scientist. They had a guy who was a maverick horticultural lunatic who was believed, well, at least they believed he'd help them grow lots of lots of things faster by doing strange experimental stuff. And there's sort of a weird echo of that here, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I guess, by about one year prefigures um, the novel Day of the Triffids, which comes out in 1952 and then gets filmed... God, but I think maybe even later than 1959. Maybe it's like into the 60s. But it's, again, it's the same thing. It's the, uh, well, Cold War anxiety is going to be expressed via these strange plant monsters. Wow. The ecological component is also a reflection of the times because I don't want to say genre films were always inspiring a message. That was a, that was a big part of the 50s. Like almost every, even the shittiest B-movies you could argue had some kind of a message about nature always wins, and that's kind of what this creature is doing by assimilating through nature. Mm-hmm. So it's almost saying, like, you're just going to like leave shit alone and don't mess with it, because, of course, our natural instinct is just to blow it up. Miss Nicholson once again comes in offering up some coffee. I didn't realize that. This is an 86-minute movie, and if you had a drinking game every, and you drank, took a shot every time this woman came in and offered some coffee, you'd be dead by the time this movie was halfway over. She does it every single time she walks in a room. But she does say an idea that they run with, which is she comes up with the idea of boiling it. So the thing comes in, they douse it, and then light it on fire. I'm telling you guys, this is impressive. Oh, yeah. My God, what a stunt this is. Yeah, that well, that, was, that looks super dangerous, especially for 1951. Positively. Oh, my God. Thank God there was no union. At the You're time. not kidding, man. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> but I, I do have to say, look, the, the stunt is impressive, and we've already ripped on the creature design a little bit, but you know what else sucks about this creature, too, is the Foley work they gave it. The sounds it utters when it's on fire, I'm like, oh, come on, guys. There is nothing frightening about this thing whatsoever. They, they should have just either made him a mute completely. Yeah. Or found, like, archive animal sounds. Mm. I don't know what the hell you would use, but just something to make it more otherworldly. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, I think the fact that you can tell it's clearly someone doing fully work mm-hmm. kind of makes it a little bit worse. But all, all I can think of watching this this thing burn alive is freaking. I think it's Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, where Ken Hodder gets lit on fire. Yep. I thought. Oh yeah. I thought of that, and I thought of the first Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Uh, that too. Yeah. yeah. We're all pyromaniacs, apparently, on this show, because all of our movies involve people being burned a lot. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean... Until we talk about the Goonies. Oh, no, well, never going to happen. This, it's true. Uh, when people say we light up a room, they, they, they mean we <laughs> literally attempt arson. <laughs> not, not that we have a sunny disposition that cheers everyone up, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> they come up with the idea to use electricity to prevent from lighting the entire facility on fire. They find that the heat is off meaning no no oil is getting in. The doctor says they owe it to civilization to just stand there and die, which is a very uh, negative outlook. Well, that's kind of similar to the story. Is it? Yeah, in, in the story, the, uh, the character Blair is kind of very much about this. We can't defeat this. We should probably all just die right now. But it makes sense in the story because it's a shape changer and any one of them could be it, yes. Yeah. Whereas here it just sounds like, well, we'll just stop. But... Um, the one thing about this scene, yes, and, you know, you can see their breaths. Yeah. yeah. Their breath. The way it's framed, you know, with actors either side of, of Margaret Sheridan there, and it really reminds me of singing in the rain. Oh, jeez. I'm getting a Debbie Reynolds is about to start singing Good Morning and singing the rain back from the scene. I'm not even sure. I think it's just the way the shot is framed. <laughs> and she's, she's made a discovery, right? But... It feels like it's going to be a lead into a song. Did you just compare the thing from another it's, world it's, to singing in the rain? Well, no, I guess it's uh, I guess it's probably more like one of Hawks' musicals or one of the comedy sort of songs yeah. in it. Yeah, like "Ball of Fire" with Barbara Stanwyck, which is which is great. You should okay. check that out. Add that on the Hawks list. Um, but yeah, it feels it feels like a weird light moment rather than a "Gee, fellas, we're all gonna yeah. die" sort of beat, which it is. Um, <laughs> They come up with the idea that the less light, the better. And again, we are getting a ton of anticipation built up here. This toxic Avenger, he could come in at any moment, can he, guys? <laughs> we're, oh, yeah. We're hearing about the first execution the newspaper guy ever witnessed. <laughs> and here comes, well... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, when Scotty's talking about the first person he saw getting electrocuted, yes. Yeah. It's, as, as a non-American, yes. That feels sort of a... Um, Almost sort of comically grim, yeah. The first time I saw our state barbarically execute somebody using an insane barbaric method, why? It was quite something. And that gives me an idea. It's weird. You know, it's the one time the dialogue doesn't work for me, is that one instance right there. You know, I, I'm with you, Mick. Like, it was just a really bizarre moment. I don't know if, like, one of the writers is trying to, you know, talk about something that he witnessed or something and just kind of injected it in, but it was a really odd moment that didn't gel with me. It's the one moment where the dialogue does not feel naturalistic at all. Yeah. The doctor starts reasoning with the thing. Which just reminded me of that teen trying to re- reason with Freddy in that second Elm Street hey, film. Man, just chill out. <laughs> These are yeah. my references, guys. Yeah, it's the bit where the film seems most sort of right wing to me, and most xenophobic, or I guess most sort of a, uh, I suppose, paranoid about the threat of foreigners. You know, it's a um, a crazy character guy trying to reason with this monster, and it's it's not a crazy idea. I mean, it's obviously intelligent. It built a spaceship. You know, you guys don't have helicopters yet. He came here in his spaceship. The idea that this doesn't like one that we could reason with, 
You should be like, yeah, would you like some dogs? We can get you dogs. Treat you some seals. You know, um, it's, it's not an unreasonable idea, but the movie treats it as like, good Lord, that egghead has lost it. He thinks we can reason yeah. with this sentient being. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I didn't think that it is a good idea to reason with it. I was taking that same stance. I, I guess I'm just a typical American when I'm just like, yeah, this is stupid. But yeah, this thing did build this fucking spaceship. It, it, it does have some signs of intelligence, so maybe it can be reasoned with. <laughs> you just convinced me, Mick. The thing, however, is undeterred. But he walks right into their trap as he is electrocuted, and the newspaper man faints. Because of course he does. Yeah. They burn everything in the lab and greenhouse as Miss Nicholson once again comes in, and you guessed it, asks if anyone wants coffee. <laughs> they get in touch with the press and give the gist of what happened there. And then the phrase this movie is probably most remembered for, he tells everyone to watch the skies, which in 1951 would be a very, very foreboding thought, as Matt pointed out. Because in the nuclear warfare going on, we had just dropped the bomb. There was so much shit going on. Just keep an eye on those guys. I, I took that last line very forebodingly. What about you guys? A little. I mean, yes. Uh, but it's the problem is it's, I've heard it so many times. The phrase Watch the Skies was one of the working titles from Close Encounters. Oh, was it? I didn't yeah, know. yes. I'm very familiar with it. And I think it's in... Um, it's mentioned in Gremlins. I think it's in Gremlins for the... Uh, there's a cinema marquee where the uh, film titles are Watch the Skies and... A ah, Boy's yeah. Life, which the latter was the working title yeah. for um, E.T. Yes. So it's yeah. weird. It's a phrase that's been ruined just by, because I've heard it too many times out of context. At the start of the year, I, I read H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, yeah. And there's mm -hmm. kind of a similar sentiment right at the start of that. With yep. the narrator talking about having survived this thing. He talks about how he used to look up at the sky at night and it was a beautiful thing. But now when he sees it, it just fills him only with terror at the thought of what might be out there. And that's... I guess this Watch the Skies thing would be more chilling if it hadn't just been, you know, ruined by several decades of, you know, um, other people referencing it and telling me about it. Yeah, it's a premonition line more than it is, like, an actual closing of the movie. But yeah, it's one of those things to where it's more effective first time you see it without all the stuff that uses it. And, and the most obscure person who loves this movie is Matthew Vaughn, of all people, because... Really? There's a character in this named General Hendry who is also the general that Kevin Bacon kills in X-Men First Class. Wow. Uh, very obscure. And, and again, that movie is sort of about Russia and nukes and to a certain extent. So a little bit of context for your comic piece. Wow. Wow, that is a deep hole. All right, boys. That does it for The Thing from Another World. Yeah. The oldest movie we've reviewed on this podcast. A scale of 1 to 10, what do we give The Thing from Another World? Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Sure, I'll go ahead and go first. It's funny how when it comes to, to, to remakes, like the big two, especially in the 80s, are the thing and the fly. And when I, when I talk about, you know, points of comparison, I say that the fly is technically a better remake because the original is a B-movie through and through. When it comes to judging this as a movie, sort of independent of the Carpenter one, which is tough for me to do because I saw the Carpenter one first, like 99% of the populace, I think this movie is sort of a classic in its own right. This is not dangerous to the still. I don't, I don't think it's as poetic or um, certainly not as optimistic as that movie is. But for, for what it is and for all the stuff that it kind of laid a foundation for, I think it's pretty effective and it's interesting to see a director you know, 
if you believe the rumors, I think there's enough evidence here to suggest that Howard Hawks did actually, this is his movie through and through. I'm not going to say this director slash editor was a puppet, but it's clear he was sort of being worked vicariously through someone else. So with all that being said, not really a whole lot I can knock or criticize, but at the same time, it, it's one of those movies where I, I can't like give it a super, super high score because I don't think it's 100% remarkable. Like I wouldn't call this like a, one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made, but it's different in the sense that these characters are not archetypes like at all. And there's a lot of resourcefulness behind the camera and all that. So, slick. It's a good sci-fi story. I'm going to go a very strong 7 on 10. 7 out of 10 from Mr. Goudreau. Mick, sir, where you come down on The Thing from Another World? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in roughly the same area. I think it's... I don't think this movie has as much to say or as much to recommend as you know, the other great and well-remembered sci-fi films from that decade. Yes, I mean, it's, it's not... I don't think it's as interesting as Day of the Earth Stood Still or Forbidden Planet. I don't think it is as much to say as Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously better than, you know, The Blob. Yeah. It's weird. It's um, For all the talk about Hawks being the main authorial influence on this, or be the person in, in control, uh, my argument here, maybe in Nibie's favor, is that... Um, I think if this had been a 100% a hard hot joint, it would be better. I don't think it's a, you know, looking at, again, you know, if you call Howard Hawks' page on IMDb and you go through all of these films he made, and also how great Hawks was in so many different genres, right? You know, the uh, John Ford versus Howard Hawks argument is, well, yeah, they all made lots of great westerns, but Howard Hawks also made amazing screwball comedies. He also made, I, I guess, the archetypal gangster film. You know, he's a, a director with a lot of range, and I think if we'd had a Howard Hawks film where he'd absolutely fully committed to this, where he wasn't using a proxy, I think we'd probably have something better. Or maybe if he'd waited a few years until, you know, the technology had moved on a little bit, we could have had maybe a better version, a better adaptation of this story, because that's how I'm also viewing this as an adaptation. So my heart says I should be kind of give it a 7, but my head is really just saying 6.5. So um, I'm going to round it up to seven just because, uh, yeah, I, I like some of the performances in it. And I think it's also a huge shame that we didn't really see Margaret Sheridan in many other movies. Cause they, she, yeah, I was going to ask about her. Yeah. She didn't go on to much, huh? No, no. She's the Trini Alvarado of 1951. You know? Uh, wow, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, you look at her and you're like, wow, she's amazing. She must be in lots of other movies, and then you go check and... That's what I thought. No, no, she's not. And again, she's, again, so Hawksian, you know. She has these amazing mm-hmm. cheekbones, and, you know, she is a um, very capable of holding her own in an ensemble. Yeah, I'm, I'm going seven, just basically. Uh, I, I think the thing that's swinging me up to seven is her performance. Her performance gives it a seven for you. You know, I I don't like podcasts where all three hosts agree on the same score, but guess what? I, I have the score written down, and I I can't go any lower or higher than a seven as well. I the, Shows like this, movies like this, are the reason why I love doing this podcast, because there are things about this. I, I, I First of all, like I said at the beginning of this thing, I had never seen this before. 
I knew it was an influence on Carpenter, obviously, since we're going to talk about the movie he did next week. I knew it was an influence on a whole bunch of people, but I... A lot of times when it comes to these movies, yes, I've seen Citizen Kane. I've seen all the ones I'm supposed to see. But I thought this would be like homework. I thought this would be something that I wouldn't like. And going through film school, again, I studied film noir. And this was something that I, it just kind of flew over me. And so when I watched this, and I'm just thinking, huh, flew over me, huh? Watching this, I, I found myself just getting engrossed by this dialogue. I found myself getting engrossed by the story. Yeah, the creature's silly. The the fact that carrots are going to attack us, it's all very, very silly. But the nature of it and the way it's formatted and the way it's structured, it's it's a very good film. I recommend people, and like you, Matt, I think 95, I'd say 90% of the people listening to this podcast right now have probably seen Carpenter's version and maybe the one the week after that, the one with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but they haven't seen this one. I would recommend picking this up and checking it out. Do what Mick did. Order the damn Blu-ray. Just check it out because it is a pretty good film for the 50s or any era. And what this also did was it made me want to seek out more of Howard Hawks stuff. It made me want to do more of this type of homework where I want to watch his stuff now because, god damn, the guy was so far ahead of his time, and I've been told that over and over. I got to experience it, and it was a nice experience. So 7 out of 10 for me. But I'm assuming the movie next week is what a lot of people know about The Thing from Another World. And John Carpenter ended up remaking this movie and just calling it The Thing. Boys, this was a movie I saw at a very impressionable age. Not going to get into the story now, but it scared the crap out of me when I was younger. Uh, What do you guys remember about next week's movie? I remember first knowing it existed probably the year it came out. I'd seen it mentioned in the cover of a magazine, and the the image, it wasn't the the cover story. It was was like a a subheading, but they had a picture of, again, they kind of sort of do their own version of the person on fire stunt in Carpenter's film, yes. And Mm -hmm. they they had an image of that, and I was very excited because I thought the thing, I thought, oh, this must be some kind of Fantastic Four movie. That must be the Human Torch. And I remember the kids looking at this magazine, going to check with us, to read about this, and seeing these images in this magazine and going, oh, no, that's something else. That's, that's a scary thing. No one's going to let me watch anytime soon. You thought it was the Human Torch? Well, yeah, because I thought, that's the matter. I didn't think a person could actually literally be on fire, right? So I thought this would be like a, oh, that must be the human torch and the thing, of course, Ben Grimm. My favorite Marvel superhero characters must be in this new movie. How exciting. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, no. Oh, my God. We have to do a Discord or something with you watching a movie because your insights are just fucking amazing. God damn. Matt, uh, what do you have to say about next week's film? What do you remember about it? I remember my introduction was Bravo TV back in the day did like hundreds of scariest movie moments and they showed actual clips like it wasn't just talking heads and they showed even before they showed the clip they showed the image of the post defibrillator monster and I was like oh my god I have to watch this movie I was like 13 and just obsessed with horror movies at that time so I almost broke my own legs running to Blockbuster to go rent this thing yeah and I'm going to leave this podcast with a tease because this movie I saw in a double feature. I saw this, and immediately after, I watched 
Firestarter. The irony behind that will be revealed next week. Boys, it's been a lot of fun not only watching this movie, but talking about it with you guys. It's just an absolute blast when I get to discover films like this. And again, it's why I really, really like doing this podcast. So thank you, gentlemen. Till next week when we discuss, for the first time, between me and Matt, yes, John Carpenter's been discussed on the show in the past, but me and Matt, will, this will be the first time me and you discuss John Carpenter on this podcast. Better move along, podcasters. Thank yeah. you, gentlemen. Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. This is an enemy right here. There are no enemies in science, Professor. Only phenomena to study. Voice narration done by Adam. This is pure nonsense. Okay. Yeah. Are you? Not yet. Edited by Garrett. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Clear! Clear? Hello. Hey, what's going on? Hey. Oh, you know, um, I, I've, I've, I've hugged myself uh, for one last night, so um, yay, it, it's great. <laughs> Uh, except for the spooky shit. Ooh. Yeah. What, what, what's yeah? Do I even go down this rabbit hole? What spooky shit? Well, um, a couple of things that literally couldn't possibly have turned themselves on have turned themselves on. <laughs> like the dial on the dryer turned itself all the way around. Oh my god! I turned itself to like eighty minutes. Yeah, like a full, which I'd never do. I, you know, I feel such you know I am. <clears throat> carbon footprint guilt anytime I use the dryer, right? Um, that, 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 that happened last night. It turned um, itself on. So, like, the dial was, like, at 45 degrees. When you came back, it was at 90 degrees. Yeah, yeah. The di- the, the, the machine was on. There was a, 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 the load was running. Oh, my God. I mean, unless the dog somehow did this, right? Which is like, but no, no. And then uh, I was watching the carpenter film that night, and the dog kept coming in and staring at me. Oh, I was like, shit. okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. <laughs> yeah. 
Matt, yeah. <laughs> welcome Mick back. He's back. Yeah. <laughs> Clear. Clear. If anything, Howard Hawks and, and Matt, I think you said it when we opened this thing. I mean, so ahead of his time when it came to this stuff. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? or? No, I just gave a... Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Because I, I, like, I like hearing you say that I was right. <laughs> Clear. Clear. What they're saying, I can see all of them thinking exactly what they're saying. You know how sometimes you have dialogue come from characters and you're like, he wouldn't say that. Oh, it like, happens in like Tarantino Eric, movies all the fucking time. Um, but here I am loving this dialogue coming from these guys. Matt, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to make a Tarantino joke. Like, all the women in Death Proof talk like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, yeah exactly. Clear! Clear! You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.